Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. I see a few of you fanning yourself. We're working on getting the air turned down. I promise you we are uh, on it. It's good for me to be back with you. This is my first Sunday uh, preaching to you in the student ministry building. My family is just returning from uh, a week at Sky Ranch Family Camp, and we had a great time. It does take two weekends for us to travel for one week away just because of the way in which our family has to travel. But we had a great time. Uh, at family camp. I think there is a picture I want to put up on the screen to show you my wife. There it is. Okay, my wife wanted me to remind you that my 14-year-old daughter, Libby, we did have a good time at camp. She's just not wanting to participate in the family photo. But listen, when you're trying to take a picture of seven, no one is going to smile every time. And so uh, we do our best. We had a great time. I'm glad to be back with you today. If you have your Bibles, go with me to John chapter 11. Uh, John chapter 11. This is our last Sunday in the sermon series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus, and in particular, our concentration regarding the seven sign miracles in the Gospel of John. You'll remember we started this in John chapter 2 when Jesus turned water into wine. And then in John chapter 4, we saw that Jesus healed the Roman official's son. In John chapter 5, Jesus healed the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 6, we saw that Jesus fed the 5,000 and then subsequently walked on the water. And that led to John chapter 9, where Jesus healed the man who was born with the condition of blindness. That leads us to today, John chapter 11, the seventh miracle, sign miracle in the gospel of John, and that is Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. And I know the, the physical reality of this particular miracle must have had such a great significance for all of those who not only witnessed it, but were impacted by it. I also understand today we're going to talk about the theological significance of this particular miracle and what it was that Jesus did. But I've often very strangely, perhaps immaturely, wondered what life must have been like for Lazarus, what resurrected earthly life must have been like for Lazarus after Jesus called him out of the grave. I mean, can you imagine just some natural, casual conversations that Lazarus might have had where somebody was like, hey, dude, where you been? Right? Or Lazarus walks in the room and somebody goes, and he's like, that's my bad. You know what I mean? Like, what was it like? I just wonder casually, like, what would that have been like? What was the resurrected? Maybe I'll get to ask Lazarus when we uh, get to heaven. I don't want us to be distracted by that silliness, but what I do want us to do is we're going to read this story of this incredible miracle. We're going to read all 44 verses today, and then we're going to stop and have conversation uh, along the way. And I'm going to point out what I think are some very prominent truths that we can draw out of this miracle that Jesus performed when he called Lazarus out of the grave. This is John chapter 11. For those of you that are in the loft uh, following with us on the screen, this will be John chapter 11. And let's pick it up together starting in verse number one. John chapter 11 starting in verse one. If you're there, say, I got it. Here we go. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, just a bit of context, because Mary and Martha are probably familiar names to you if you've read much of your New Testament. Uh, these sisters of Lazarus are evidently a family that is very close to Jesus. We know this 
from two very obvious ways. One is they reference Lazarus to Jesus by saying the one whom you love has fallen ill. He's sick. The other thing you're going to see is that Jesus is very moved. He is very emotional when he discovers the death of uh, Lazarus. And, and so we know that this is a family that is very close-knit and evidently very close themselves to Jesus. In addition to that, Mary and Martha are familiar to us because according to Luke chapter 10 verses 6 through 13, you probably remember the story. Martha was hosting Jesus and his disciples and she's busy working and making preparations in her home and Mary goes and sits at the feet of Jesus to learn from him as he was teaching them. And Martha went to Jesus and complained. She's like, I'm busy running around doing all this stuff and Mary's just sitting at your feet. And Jesus says, Mary's chosen the better Portion. You might also remember Mary and Martha, that Mary is the one who, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 38 through 42, gets rebuked by Judas, the betrayer, because she broke an expensive alabaster jar of perfume and actually anointed the feet of Jesus, wiping them clean with her hair, which, by the way, was the only way, by God's divine provision, that Jesus was able to be anointed prior to his sacrificial death and ultimate burial in the borrowed Tomb. And so Mary and Martha have history here with Jesus. Keep reading verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, what is Jesus saying here with this little proverb in verses uh, 7 through uh, 10? Well, essentially, Jesus is talking about seizing the opportunities. So 12 hours in a day, Jesus is representing the daytime, right? So he's saying we must seize the opportunities that God gives us because there is coming a time when it's going to get dark and we can't do that kind of work anymore. The opportunity that was before Jesus that he was seizing was because he was physically present to be able to resurrect Lazarus physically from the grave. Now listen, fam, the opportunities for us are spiritual because Jesus has not yet returned. And the question is whether or not we're seizing ours. You with me? Like I have breakfast often at a local restaurant. I meet people there for breakfast. Sometimes I just go by myself because it's an easy place for me to study uh, quietly first thing in the morning. There's not a single waiter or waitress in that restaurant who hasn't been invited to church here at Prestonwood and hasn't heard the gospel from me. I want to seize my opportunities. Listen, it doesn't take long in a town like ours for people to know, well, he's the pastor of that church. And I don't want them to know I'm the pastor and not have been given an invitation to our church and for me to have told them what it was that I believe. Why are we seizing our spiritual opportunities while it's daytime? Why do I ask? Because nighttime is coming when those opportunities will be no more. That's the point that Jesus is making. Keep reading verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas called the 12, uh, I'm sorry, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
I'm going to highlight what I think are six uh, prominent truths, big ideas, takeaways. These are not exhaustive. These are not all the things that you can glean from this incredible miracle moment with Jesus. But these are six things that I think God has made clear to me that I want us to discuss and I think are worthy of our uh, attention today. So if you're a note taker, this will bless you. And if you're not, then just try your best to follow along. Here we go. Number one is this. Suffering is never a surprise to God. Suffering is never a surprise to God. When Jesus is given word about Lazarus' illness, you'll notice he's not panicked. He's not shocked. He's not dismayed. Jesus is not caught by surprise. Now, often, let's just be honest with one another. Often, we're shocked by our suffering. We're surprised by it whenever it shows up. But Jesus never is. In fact, Jesus very calmly explains, according to verse 4, that this illness doesn't lead to death, but rather this illness has come for the glory of God to be shown through it. And so while suffering catches us by surprise, it never catches Jesus by surprise. Now he's concerned about it, to be sure, and we can't conflate the two. Jesus is concerned, but he's not surprised. In fact, if Jesus were surprised, I would tell you he isn't God. I have a good friend of mine right now who coaches at the highest level of professional sports, and he's between jobs. And I've been praying a lot with him, had a lot of conversations with him lately about just trusting God and continue to pursue these opportunities and go to the interviews when they're made available to you. But let's just trust God because God is in charge of everything all the time. And if he isn't in charge of everything, and if it isn't all the time, then he isn't God. And so we have to recognize that suffering doesn't catch Jesus by surprise. There's never been a moment that you and I have endured an, a difficulty, a hardship, a calamity, a pain, when Jesus goes, Poof, I didn't see that coming. We do, right? Come on. We do. When it shows up, we're like, dang, that, I did not know that. Like, that's hard. But Jesus never does. Suffering is never a surprise to God. Number two is this. Suffering serves the purposes of God, even when we don't understand it. Suffering serves the purposes of God even when we don't understand it. I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but according to verse 6, there's something quite strange that takes place that I think if you and I were actually physically there when we had heard Jesus respond in this particular way, it would have been offensive to us. According to verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, if Lazarus is your brother, as he was for Mary and Martha, or if he's your friend, like he must have been at this point for at least some of the disciples, then when Jesus, upon hearing about Lazarus' illness, intentionally delays having uh, responded by returning uh, there to Bethany, it would have been strange, to say the least. You could argue even cruel if you don't understand what it was that he's doing it. Uh, but I would tell you that suffering serves the purposes of God, regardless of whether or not we understand exactly what that happens to be. Um, when Mary and I got uh, Libby's diagnosis, our 14-year-old that was frowning in the picture, uh, it, it, it was a shock to us. And we had a lot of people that responded with a lot of different things. We had a lot of advice thrown our way. And there was a lot of good advice, including some biblical uh, uh, advice and, uh, and scripture that was shared with us. Well, one of the scriptures that was shared is Romans 8, 28. And it says that we know that for those who love God, he works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is true. 
But when you're navigating seasons of suffering, it's not necessarily what you are in the place to hear and process at that particular time. In fact, on more than one occasion, I had people say that to me, and I wanted to karate chop them in the throat and say, is that for good? (laughs) I never did. I'm just saying I wanted to, all right? Maybe hit them with a roundhouse. I don't know. But I wanted to. But listen, that word in the New Testament, in the Greek language, in Romans 8, 28, that says all things, it doesn't mean some things. It doesn't mean the things we understand. It doesn't mean the occasional things. It certainly doesn't mean all the good things. It means all things. God is working all things. All suffering serves a purpose, even when we don't understand what that happens to be. Now, In this instance, what is the purpose of God that the disciples may or may not understand as it relates to the illness of Lazarus? Well, look with me at verses 14 and 15. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. God permitted Lazarus' illness for the purpose of bringing belief to uh, to others. This is the reason why I'll often say to you, Suffering is never wasted when it's in the hands of our God. Your suffering is never wasted when it's in the hands of Jesus. Do you remember in John chapter 6, there was the storm on the sea? The disciples got wet. The waves were crashing. The wind was blowing. I mean, they endured a storm. But what they probably didn't know is that Jesus was protecting them from a greater storm, which would have been the storm of false worship. They would have left that mountaintop meal with full bellies and empty hearts. Now, they couldn't have known that at the time, right? But their suffering served a purpose of God, and it does for us even when we don't understand it. Suffering is never Wasted. You haven't experienced a moment of difficulty, calamity, hardship, or pain that God hasn't manufactured, fashioned, and formed for your good and perhaps even for the good of someone else. Do you know how many couples I have watched minister, having navigated their own seasons of infertility, to other couples that are navigating seasons of infertility now? Do you know how many cancer survivors I have watched navigate? counsel and encouragement after their season of suffering, giving counsel to someone else navigating their season of suffering. I've watched this over and over and over again. And how is that possible? Because suffering serves God's purposes. And you and I may not understand exactly what that happens to be. Keep reading verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again. In the resurrection on the last day, and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here. 
And he's asking for you. And when she had heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary rose quickly and got out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Number three is this. Jesus does not rebuke our ifs, but he redeems them into our because. Jesus does not rebuke our ifs, but he redeems them into our because. Did you see that? Both sisters went to Jesus with an if. Both sisters had questions that sounded like this. Jesus, if you had been here, Jesus, if you hadn't delayed two extra days, Jesus, if you had come when we sent the message that our brother whom you love is so sick, Jesus, if you hadn't done what you did, our brother would be alive. And Jesus never rebukes them. He isn't angry. He isn't annoyed. He isn't discouraged by their questions. And look at me. He's not discouraged by yours either. Some of you need to recognize that you can always go to God with your questions. When you're having your moment of if only, God, if only she hadn't left me. God, if only I hadn't been fired. God, if only you hadn't let this test reveal this result. God, if only 2020 hadn't taken away that person that I love. God, if only this person hadn't been elected or that person had. God, if only, if only. He's never rebuking your ifs, but what does Jesus do? He's in the business of redeeming them into a because, into your because. Beyond the tender patience, Jesus is also redemptive. And think about the difference between going to someone who welcomes your questions and going to someone who does not. My daughter Campbell's in the, headed into the fourth grade. She was telling us uh, a few years ago about she was struggling with a, uh, a learning concept at school, and, and Mary and I were asking her, why, why didn't you go ask the teacher? Like, if you didn't understand this, why didn't you go ask the teacher? And you know what her response was? She said, she doesn't like it when we ask questions. She gets mad. Now, think about the difference for a child who understands that when you go to the teacher and they are annoyed that you're asking the question, what the learning difference is for a child who knows that their teacher welcomes them instead. Look at me. Jesus welcomes the question. The rabbi never rebukes Mary and Martha when they ask the if-only questions. But what he does is he redeems them into the because I delayed. Because I delayed, I'm able to do the greater miracle. And it brings about the greater result, which is the belief for people who have none. You see, if Jesus had immediately responded... When the word about Lazarus's illness had first made it to his ears, then Lazarus wouldn't have died. Jesus couldn't have done the greater miracle of resurrecting him from the grave. And the greater need, which was the need for belief, might not have been accomplished. But Mary and Martha were asking the question, if only. And Jesus didn't rebuke him from that, but instead he redeems it to, because I did, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I remember when I was a freshman in college, I played small college basketball for a year. I got injured in an inter-squad scrimmage and broke my orbital bone and my nose and my sinus cavity. And, and so uh, long before LeBron made it cool, I had to wear the face mask. It was awful, awful. 
And I developed a bad attitude. I walked in immaturity, and so it ended basically necessitated that I needed to finish playing college basketball because the way I, think, I, I wanted things to work just wasn't going to be how they were going uh, uh, to turn out. And so I remember being angry about that because I really wanted to play college basketball. I really thought that this was everything that I was working for. And in some of my anger, I lashed out at God with a, why? If only you hadn't let me get, get injured. If only the insurance of the school had been more uh, responsive in how they were going to treat me so I didn't have to wear this silly mask. If only all of these things, if only this and if only that. But what God did was he sent me the next year to Texas Tech. And the very first weekend of the very first semester, I met my wife. I met my wife. And so what God did was take my question of if, and he redeemed it to because I let you get injured, because I let you transfer, then look at what 23 years of grace have looked like in your life now. You with me? Some of you are stuck with the if only, and God's not mad at you. But maybe you need to press pause and think about that. But because of, here's what, I, here's what I've done instead. You with me? Keep reading verse 24. Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Critics are everywhere all the time. The fourth thing I want to point out to you is this. Jesus hurts when we hurt, and Jesus hurts as we hurt. Jesus hurts when we hurt, and Jesus hurts as we hurt. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, I was giving an assignment at our school that we had to memorize scripture and we need to memorize at least one scripture verse of significance to us and then recite the scripture verse and tell why it has significance for us. And, uh, and this was before the internet, but somehow I'd learned that John 11.35 is the shortest verse in all of the Bible. And so I committed that one to memory. <laughs> yep. And while that verse did not have any significance to me then, and it's probably not a top 10 verse for me today, it is significant. Do you know why? Because I believe in that verse, we get a glimpse of the compassion and kindness of our God. Jesus cried when his friend died because he loved Lazarus and he was sad about it. God knows emotion firsthand and he can relate when we feel ours as well. In fact, I think there are two reasons that Jesus cried. The first is this. I think when Martha and then subsequently Mary showed up, and the Bible says they've been They've been grieving, and, and that they're showing up to Jesus with tears, sobbing and sadness, and then they ask him the if-only questions, if only you had been here. I think that Jesus cries because he sees the heartbreak in those whom he loves. And so there are some of you who have wondered before about whether or not God is sad when you are, and the answer to that question is yes. Why? Because just as he loved Mary and Martha, he loves you too. He loves you too. And I think God is heartbroken here. I think Jesus has sadness and grief because he sees the sadness and the heartbreak and the grief in these women that he loves. And he's heartbroken because they are. Jesus hurts when we hurt. He's sad when we're sad. And by the way, that's how you feel about family. When you love someone, you're sad when they are. My daughter, Catherine, is a sophomore in college, but when she was a sophomore in high school, we moved here to North Texas from East Texas, and sophomore year for my daughter was hard, and here's why. It's because your sophomore year of high school is your sweet 16, 
and my daughter didn't make friends immediately in her new school. And so she went to school every single Monday morning, having discovered at the lunch table that one of the girls at that lunch table had a Sweet 16 birthday party the Friday or Saturday night before, and she was not invited to it. And so over and over and over again, she would come in on Monday nights and we would say, hey, how was school today? And then she would get in bed with us and she would tell us that somebody had had a birthday party and she wasn't invited and all the girls were sharing pictures and it had been posted on Instagram and she cried crocodile tears the entire fall of that sophomore year. And guess what? Mary and I cried too. Because when someone you love is hurting, you're hurting with them. And that's how Jesus is. Why? Because he loves us too. You with me? He hurts when we hurt. Here's the second reason I think he cried. Because Jesus expresses real physical tears, genuine emotion, and I think those things communicate his humanity unlike much anything else. In fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that Jesus is actually an empathetic high priest. It says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We know that Jesus hurts when we hurt, but I would tell you he hurts as we hurt. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He experienced all of the emotion that comes with the pain of a life lived here on earth, just like you and me. And so I would say some of you are here this morning and you have not properly processed your grief. I don't know what you're grieving. I don't know if it's something that happened in the last few days something that happened in the last few years, or something that happened a long, long time ago. But I'm wondering if you need today to entrust your sadness to your Savior, knowing that He loves you, and when you hurt, He does. And He has experienced exactly what that hurt happens to feel like. And so today is a day when you need to turn your grief over to God. You need to just lay it down. I don't know what you're sad about. I don't know if you've lost a parent or a child. I don't know if you are sad because... Something terrible has happened in your family. You have a child who is far from God. You desperately want a child, and God has yet to provide it. I don't know what it is that's grieving your heart and making you sad, but I know there is a Savior who is tender about it. You have a God in Jesus Christ who loves you and is near in the middle of it, and he knows exactly what that heartache happens to feel like because he's felt it himself. He hurts when we hurt, and he hurts as we hurt. Let's keep reading. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again in the New Testament. That means that emotions showed up all over again. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man said, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Number five is this. Our pain finds its purpose only when it's entrusted to God. Our pain finds its purpose only when it's entrusted to God. When Jesus finally gets to the tomb, he's overwhelmed with emotion all over again. And as Jesus commands him to moved the stone, Martha interjects, and she's like, he's been dead four days, he's going to stink. But in verse 40, Jesus reminds her that the problem of this pain of Lazarus's death actually has purpose. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? 
And Jesus goes on in verse 42 and he prays and he thanks God for what's being done through this tragedy. Imagine that, fam. Imagine having such faith in God's purpose in our pain that we could actually pray and thank him for it. Like what if he's using the fire of your suffering to bring about a faith that wouldn't exist without it? Is it possible that whatever it is that has been so difficult for you to endure has been the instrument that God has used to make you look more like Jesus than you would have without it? Is it possible that God has purpose and you won't recognize that purpose until you entrust the pain that brought it about fully and completely to him? That's what he does with our pain, just as he did with the pain of Mary and Martha and the difficulty that Jesus himself felt over Lazarus' death. I can just remember in 2011 when our Hannah was born. She's the 11-year-old, the other one that you saw in the wheelchair. And when, when we received Hannah's diagnosis, we were at the pediatrician's office and uh, it took us about an hour to collect ourselves because we were crying and the pediatrician was crying and it was just kind of a mess that we made there in the doctor's office. And I didn't want to freak out all the parents that were there for a well check. And so it took us a long time to collect ourselves enough to want to leave the doctor's office that day. But we had Hannah in her baby carrier, and then in the backseat of my car was like the base that you click it in. And, uh, and I can remember that when we left the pediatrician's office, I had Hannah in her car seat, and I clicked her into the, into the base, and Mary was already sitting in the front seat. And before I turned the ignition over, God spoke to my spirit as clearly as I'm speaking to you now. And he said this, Connor, I have counted you worthy to get to do this twice. And I don't believe purpose is found until you discover there's privilege even in the pain. Right? Like, I can't believe that God has entrusted these two girls to me. I'm overwhelmed. Now, I'm not going to minimize it. I told you it takes two weekends for the Bales family to travel one week. And that's because if we travel much more than six or seven hours in the car, the girl's legs swell up, and so it becomes a significant complication because of their medical conditions. And so it just takes us a minute to go anywhere. And then as we go there, it's a, it's a thing. Like if you were to see us at a rest stop, and my kids are holding up either side of a blanket so that Mary and I can change the girls with dignity in the backseat of her car, it's a thing. Our friends who go to camp with us are kind enough to be patient and wait on us to help us lay out blankets for the girls when we're going to go do an activity and everybody else's kid is running around and everybody's having to wait because ours just doesn't do that. I'm not minimizing how difficult things happen to be, but I'm overwhelmed that God has entrusted that good work to us. And look at me, he's counted you worthy of something too. Every single one of you, it's different than what he counted us worthy of, but it's altogether something that he's entrusted to you. And your pain will find its purpose when you entrust it to God. He's not wasting it. He's using it. And what if it is that difficulty, that fire that is fashioning you, a faith that wouldn't exist apart from that difficult work? This is what it looks like, and this is what Jesus wants Mary and Martha, and I think you and me, to see. Let's finish this way, verses 43 and 44. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped 
with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The last thing I would share with you this morning, and perhaps my favorite thing about this story of resurrection is this. Our salvation is a resurrected and eternal life, but it includes a freedom right here and right now. Our salvation is a resurrected and eternal life, but it includes a freedom right here, right now. Again, let me remind you, when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave, the very next statement that he makes is this one, unbind him, set him free. Why? Because Lazarus has been given resurrected life. And guess what? If you are in Christ Jesus, you have resurrected life too. And that means the grave clothes, the things that have you bound up, the things that have you feeling left uh, like you've been knocked down, those things don't fit anymore. If you are in Christ Jesus, he means to set you free for everlasting life. But it comes with a freedom that you need to walk in right here, right now. And some of you are still bound by the grave clothes of anxiety and depression and fear and the opinion of other people and addiction to substance and addiction to pornography and the feeling of failure or something that was done by you or something that was done to you. And I'm telling you, Jesus is calling you out of that grave and he needs you to hear him say, unbind him. Because the grave clothes don't fit you anymore. That's not who you are if you are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free. And some of us are delaying that freedom for a one-day win. And in Christ Jesus, it's right here, right now. And there is freedom for us. There is freedom for every single one of us that are in Christ Jesus. Grave clothes don't fit the Christian. Because we have everlasting life in God. And Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, and I think he's calling some of you out of the grave too. And he's either doing it for the first time or by way of reminder to unbind yourself. Because in Christ Jesus, that's not who you are. Every time we've seen one of these miracles that has a physical reality, it comes with a deeper spiritual implication. When Jesus met that crazy woman at the well, he said, whoever drinks of me because I'm living water, is never going to thirst again. When Jesus fed those hungry people on a mountain, he said, I'm the bread of life, and whoever eats of me is never going to hunger again. And when Jesus showed up at the tomb of a dead man, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, is going to live. And if you live in Christ Jesus, that means you grave clothes don't fit. And I think some of you need to be unbound here today. So I don't know where you are in your journey with Jesus, but every week of this sermon series for about the last five months, I've asked you this question. What are you going to do with Jesus? And so I don't know where you are in your suffering. I don't know if you feel like God's not using it or there's no purpose in it, but I promise you this, when it's entrusted to him, God will never waste it. He will never waste it. So maybe today, some of you need to hand over your grief, your sadness, and you need to give that to God. Others of you, you need to experience the resurrected life that's in Jesus Christ. You need to decide today that the grave is not for you. God has died so that you can have everlasting life, eternal life with him. And with that resurrected life comes a freedom from the things that have you bound right here, right now. 
Some of you are battling addiction and you're trying to do this all on your own. And I would tell you that God died so that you don't have to. There's freedom in Jesus Christ. And this is a church where it is okay for you not to be okay because Jesus died so we wouldn't stay that way. And so if you choose to be honest with us and be honest with yourself about where God has you and what he's doing in you, we'll walk alongside you. And so I'm going to give you an invitation here in just a moment, and you will have an opportunity to respond, both in this room and, yes, in the loft today. There are ministers that are at the front of the room, and if you would choose to be honest about where you are in regards to your suffering, your hardship, your pain, in regards to your grief, your sadness, something you need to give over to God, or in regards to the resurrected life, and whether it needs to begin now or you need to be unbound because it began a long time ago and you kept the grave clothes on. Whatever it is that God is laying on your heart, I pray that you would be obedient to respond to that. The invitation is mine. The opportunity to respond is yours. And so do with it as God leads you, but I pray that you would be bold enough and obedient to respond to him. Let me pray. Father, in Jesus' name, as we enter into this time of invitation and the worship response, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us the faith and the boldness to step out and to respond and to exercise faith. God, thank you that the same thing you did for Lazarus, calling him out of the grave, you have done for us. And for every single one of us that are in Christ Jesus, the grave clothes don't fit. So thank you, Jesus, for unbinding us, setting us free. May we see grave clothes fall off all over this church here today. We love you and we trust you. We pray these things to you. In Jesus' good name, amen.